next Sunday, we will um, stop and um, look at the end of Acts chapter 4, and then of course the following two Sundays are Palm Sunday and Easter. I'll be teaching those three weeks. Uh, I got a call from uh, Anush a little bit ago, and with his schedule, he was available this week, and whenever he's available um, with his kind of schedule, I just say, I just put him in. So uh, this is Anish John, if you don't know him. So bless you, man. Twenty minutes on the clock, my brain is sweating, my pencils racing through pages. My hands are crying, I can't take it anymore. My eyes cry, onion tears, oh no, ten minutes left. One passage blank, one response half done. The pale chalk in my teacher's hand mocking my pain as she erases the numbers and says, two minutes left. Smoke is coming out of my ears, what does dismal mean? I need an ambulance, my heart is going to come out. My hands have a cold, it's shaking as I circle the letter B. I'm drunk, I'm shrinking, the room is getting bigger. Help, five, four, three, two, one, time's up. That was a seventh grader taking a test. (laughs) This morning we are going to look at what is the mother of all tests in Genesis chapter 22. We will not be reading the verses from 1 through 17 because it is a very familiar story. But I will tell you the story real brief. God had given Abraham a son after 25 years of waiting. At age 100, Abraham had a son. It was a promised son, the son of all the past promises that God had given him. Years later, God asks him to sacrifice that son to see how Abraham would respond. And Abraham responded appropriately by going for the sacrifice. He took his son and two servants went up to this place called Moriah, left the two servants down at the bottom of the mountain, went up with his son. His son carried the wood. He carried the knife and the fire, went up to the mountain. He built an altar, laid his son on the altar, bound him there. And then as he was about to bring the knife down into his son, God told him to stop. And then he stopped, he turned around, and he saw a ram that was caught in the thicket, and he sacrificed the ram instead of his son. This morning, I've split the sermon called Will Sink into three parts. The first part, we will look at some preliminary points about tests. In the second part, we will answer the question, why does God test us? And thirdly, we will look at will sink. Some points about tests. Let me read Genesis 22, verses 1 and 2. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. The first point that I want to make is that tests are certain. You're going to face a test. You're going to face tests, multiple tests. God will test us. Exodus 16 verse 4 says, The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them. God was testing them every 
day. Tests are the rule, not the exception. A.W. Tozer said, it is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. A lot of the hurting deeply will come during our tests. In John chapter 6, Jesus has this huge homily about being the bread of life. And he goes on to say, I'm the bread of life. He who uh, wants eternal life has to eat of my flesh and drink my blood. Obviously, Jesus was talking allegorically, not condoning cannibalism. But at the end of that talk, the Bible says in John 6, 6, 6, that some disciples said, this is hard teaching, who can follow it? And the Bible says that many disciples turned and went away. What do you think Jesus did then? If you've studied pathology in professional school, you know that the Bible of pathology is this book called Robbins. But Robbins is a 1,600-page book that has every disease under the sun, and no student is going to read it unless you're studying pathology, studying, studying to be a pathologist. So instead of this 1,600-page book, there is a smaller version of Robbins called Baby Robbins. And most students read Baby Robbins to get through exams. What do you think Jesus said when many of his disciples turned and left? Do you think he said, wait, 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 wait. There is a baby version of the Christian faith. You don't need to follow this hard part of the Christian faith. There is a baby version of it. No. You know what Jesus said? He turned to the other 12 and asked, do you also want to leave? Peter said, Lord, you have the words of eternal life. Where else can we go? The Christian life is hard. If you've heard otherwise, it's not biblical. The Christian life is hard. The life with Christ is hard The life without Christ is not harder, it is impossible. The second point that I want to make about testing is that it builds character. God tests us to build us up. James 1.13 says that God does not tempt anyone. So the difference between tempting and testing is that temptation is from Satan Testing is from God. Temptation is to drag us down, to cause us to sin. Testing is to build us up. Nowhere in scripture has God promised to give us a comfortable life. Not there. You would say, oh, in Isaiah 40, verse 1, it says, comfort, comfort, oh my people. Yeah, but that's after a period of exile. So that doesn't count. But God has promised character. God has promised to build our character. So in Romans 8.32, it says that he is transforming us to the likeness of Christ. 
The third thing about tests is increasing intensity. Now I want you to look at the progression of severity in the tests that Abraham had. His first test was in Genesis 12, and his last test was in Genesis 22. Look at the comparison between these two tests. In the first test, it said, go by yourself from your country to the land that I will show you. In the last test, it said, go by yourself to the land of Moriah. I will tell you about it. In the first test, it said, separate yourself from your family. In the last test, it says, separate yourself from your son by killing him. So you see that the intensity of the test is different. The test is essentially the same, but the intensity is different. All tests are essentially, at its core, the same. God is building us up. But the intensity is different. If you were a first grade student and you went for your math exam, you expect a question, what is 10 plus 9? But if you were a 12th grade student, you would not expect that question. You would expect a question on integral calculus or something. What is the rate of change? Wouldn't you? But if you were a 12th grade student and you went for your math test and the test said, what is 9 plus 7, that is an insult to your intelligence. Because a harder test shows growth. If you are sitting with what is 9 plus 5 for the last seven years, it means that you've not passed it the first time and the subsequent four times. If you're having tests that are the exact same for the last 10 years, it means that we have not been passing those tests. In the second section, I want to look at the question, why does God test us? There are many reasons, but I want to look at three reasons. The first reason why God tests us is to see the expression of our faith in him. Verse 5, Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go there, and we will worship and return. You see the faith of Abraham there. In verse 7, Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. Now, God gave Abraham many promises. From Genesis chapter 12 following, there are many promises that God gave Abraham. And all those promises depend on the fact that there is an Isaac. The existence of Isaac is critical to the fulfillment of all the promises that God gave Abraham. And then God gives a command to sacrifice Isaac. On one side are all the promises for which Isaac needs to exist. 
on the other side is the command which if obe uh, obeyed would nullify the basis on which the promise exists. So what does Abraham do? Does he tell God, Lord, your promises say that Isaac needs to exist? Or does he say, I will obey you and it is your headache to make the two work together? And that is what he does. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 17 through 19, it says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had promised, received the promises, was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. So in Abraham's mind, he thought, I'm going to obey God, and if God wants to fulfill all these promises, God will raise Isaac from the dead. Abraham based his faith on the word of God, not on the apparent contradictions of his command. Let me give you examples of promises that are constantly challenged by our circumstances. Do all things work together for good? It's easy to say it works together for good when things are going good. But when things are going bad and continue to remain bad, we ask ourselves, really? Is this true? We can ask ourselves, what is... What if the Christian faith is not true? I spent so many Sundays in church. What if? We can ask, is God really in control of this world? Russia is on the verge of invading Ukraine. Iran constantly taunts the UN. North Korea is beheading its own family. Planes disappear. Israel and Palestine are still at war with each other. Pakistan is still killing Indians. Most of the world is still in poverty. Genocide goes on in Sudan. Revolutions in Venezuela. Syria continues to kill its own. Is God really in control? Or we may ask, is God really with me? Is he, does he answer prayers? Again, it's fine if everything is going fine. But if you're the parent that's praying for your son to come back to the faith for the last 10 years, or if you're the mother that's, that's praying for her daughter to come back for the last 15 years, then doubt begins to creep into your mind and you ask, is God really with me? And does prayer really work? The second reason why God tests us is to see the enhancement of our fear of him. 
Verse 12 says, he said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God. Abraham's fear of God was revealed. The fear of God is not something that people in the West usually want to hear about. I've actually had a lady come to me and say that they are not comfortable with that concept, that God needs to be feared. But respect and reverence is well understood in the East. Let me give you a couple examples. When I grew up in India, one of the rules of respect was that if somebody older than you walked into the room, you stood up. No matter how old you were, if somebody older than you showed up to the room, you stood up. If 25 people came who were older than you to the room, you stood up 25 times. In the East, nobody would refer to a senior pastor as Kim. They would call him Pastor Kim. Never, ever Kim. That was just the way it was. So for Abraham, it was easy for him to understand reverence. God wants us to fear him. God is not your buddy. I know it says, I have called you friends, Jesus said in John 15. But God's not your buddy. God wants and demands respect. He is the eternal, powerful, almighty creator with knowledge and wisdom far beyond our wildest imagination. He demands respect. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29 says, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. What is it that keeps us from sin? Is it the fear of God and therefore the fear of judgment or the love of God? What is it that keeps us from sin? The fear of God or the love of God? How many of you have ever gone faster than the legal speed limit? Come on. Wow. Wow. All right. Let's... Let's try again this time. Let's be honest in church. How many of us have gone faster than the legal speed limit? There you go. There you go. Okay. How many of us have gone faster than the legal speed limit and not been caught? There you go. Perfect. How many of us have gone faster than the speed limit and been caught? Okay. Would you stop going faster than the speed limit if you were not caught or caught? Caught. It is the fear of judgment that keeps us from sin. Exodus 20 verse 20 says, Moses said to the people, do not be afraid for God has come in order to test you in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. The more we sin, the more he will test us so that he can build fear in us so that we will not sin. So if you want more testing, that's great. Continue to sin. 
then God will continue to test you. The third reason why uh, we go through tests is to see the extent of our fondness for him. In Deuteronomy chapter 13 and verse 3, it says, You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love him. In John chapter 21, we have the story of how Jesus, when he was crucified, seven of his disciples went away back to their old profession, including Peter. And the Bible says that they were up all night and they couldn't catch single fish. And they were out in the uh, middle of the lake and Jesus was on the shore and Jesus said, cast your net on one side. The Bible says they cast their net and there were 153 large fish that were dragged to shore. Once all the fish came to shore, Jesus confronts Peter and asks him, do you love me more than these? Do we love God more than these? Do we love the gifts more than the giver? James 1 says that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. What if your favorite TV show or your favorite sport or your kids' practice is on Sunday morning? Do you love the gifts more than the giver? Because if God can give good gifts, he knows how to take away a gift. If we say, you know, the only time my kid can go for baseball practice is on Sunday morning, it's easy for God to rectify that. Lent in Orthodox Christianity is a period of 40 to 44 days before Easter and was started to show penance and sacrifice and fasting. But Lent now, as we see it is is kind of a downplay of what it was intended for. So we have people sacrificing, sacrificing ridiculous things. I will not talk to my cat for 40 days. <laughs> or I will not watch Sherlock for 40 days. Or I will not eat pork for 40 days. Don't get me wrong. I love any kind of sacrifice. But the problem with giving God a pittance is that we are delusioned into thinking that that is enough. And that is not enough. It's it's like when you go to a restaurant and you order food. Um, So you appetize a fried calamari. And then you have this creamy... Alfredo sauce pasta for entree, and then you have tiramisu for dinner, I mean for uh, dessert, and then you have diet soda. 
because that makes it all okay. It's the diet soda that's gonna keep you away from the cardiologist. We think by just giving a little bit, we can rectify everything. Just by sacrificing a little bit here and a little bit there, I can appease God. No, it doesn't work that way. God wants you and everything you own. Anything less is an insult to God. What is the extent of what you will give him? What are the things you love the most? Maybe you love your spouse the most. Or you love your kids the most. Or you love your job. Or your possessions. Or ministry the most. What if God asked you tonight to give that up? What would your response be? If it is impossible to give it up, it means that you love God second. We're going to look at synchronous wills. There are two sets of synchronous wills in the story. The first synchronous set of wills is between Abraham and God. Verse 2 says, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, of which I will tell you. The structure of that sentence indicates that God wished for Abraham to give his son as a free will offering. God wanted Abraham to choose to give his son. So disobedience was an option. But Abraham came to a point where his will was in sync with God's will. Does your will align with God's will? If he were to ask you something. God detests the second place. If there is a dyssynchrony, guess who has to change? I'll give you a hint. It's not God. <laughs> Jim Elliot was killed at the age of 28 by the Hurani people of Ecuador, whom he was trying to evangelize. And this is what he said. Is it not for all its sting a wonderful way to live? to dream and want and pray almost savagely and then to commit and wait and see him quietly pile all dreams aside and replace them with what we could not dream, the realized will. Horatio Spafford was a rich, successful Chicago lawyer. He and his wife, Anna Spafford, were known, well known in 1860s Chicago, not only because of their legal and their business endeavors, but because he was good friends with a famous preacher by the name of D.L. Moody. 
In 1870, however, things started to go wrong. The Spafford's only son was killed by uh, scarlet fever at the age of four. In 1871, the Great Chicago Fire completely burned down all his investment holdings along Lake Michigan. So Horatio Spafford decided to take his family, his wife and four daughters on a vacation to England. Not only did they need the rest, but they were also going to help D.L. Moody in one of his evangelistic crusades in England. And so in November of 1873, the Spaffords went to New York from Chicago, where they were to catch the French steamer Villa de Havre across the Atlantic. But just before they were to set, uh, set sail, a business reason caused Spafford to, go, to have to go back to Chicago. So he didn't want to spoil the family vacation. He told his family, his wife Anna and four children, to continue on to England, and he would follow them at the next available opportunity. Nine days later, Spafford received this telegram that said, from his wife, that said, saved alone. On November 2nd, 1873, the Villa de Havre had collided with the Lockhearn, an English vessel, and in 12 short minutes sank, killing 226 people on board. Anna Spafford bravely stood on the deck while her four daughters clung to her, around her, but eventually the raging waters would get her daughters one by one by one. Anna herself was knocked unconscious and fell on a plank and therefore survived. Upon hearing the terrible news, Horatio Spafford boards the next ship out from New York and goes to London. In the middle of the journey, the captain of the ship called Spafford to the deck and said, this is where I believe the de Havre sank. The water at that point was three miles deep. He was passing right over where his four daughters had met their watery end. He comes back to his cabin and writes these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Ladies and gentlemen, if you can say it is well with my soul when you are going through your worst life circumstance, I promise you that your will is in sync with God's will. But there is another synchrony of wills in the story. That of Abraham and Isaac. Abraham was about 120 years old. Isaac was 18 to 20 years old. If there was a physical altercation between a 20 year old and a 120 year old, who do you think would win? So if Abraham bound Isaac and put him on the altar, it is because Isaac wanted to be on that altar. 
the father wanted to sacrifice his son and the son wanted to be that sacrifice and their wills were in sync. God the father wanted to sacrifice his son for God so loved the world that he gave his son. But the son wanted to be that sacrifice. John 10, 11 says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life for the sheep. He chose to be that sacrifice. And this time, ladies and gentlemen, the knife did not stop in its trajectory. The full force of the wrath of God fell down upon his son and there was no one to stop it. If God wanted to save his son, he would have had to let go of you and me. And if God wanted to keep you and me, he would have had to let go of his son. In 2004, Gillian Searle of Perth in Western Australia her husband and their two sons, aged five and two, went to Thailand for a Christmas vacation. But on December 26th, disaster struck. A massive earthquake occurred with resulting tsunamis that killed over 230,000 people in 14 countries with waves up to 100 feet high. Gillian and her family were at this beach resort when the waves came in. Her husband had gone up to their room to get something. So Jillian was here with her two children at the swimming pool when the waves came in. With one hand, she grabbed onto something stable and then she had to make a choice. In a split decision, split second, she had to choose whether she was going to save the five-year-old or the two-year-old. And she chose to save the two-year-old. And in choosing to save the two-year-old, she chose to let the five-year-old get washed by the ocean waters. For God to save you and me, he had to choose to let go of his son. If there's anyone here who's never invited Jesus into your life, I'm going to ask you to stand up. And we will pray. If there is anyone here who wants to respond to the sermon in any way, I'm going to ask you to stand up and we will pray together. If God is asking you for the thing that you love the most and you cannot give it, it means your wills are not in sync. You can stand up and we will pray together. As we sing the song that says, it is well with my soul.